0: biggest names in politics. Whoa,
1: that's news. Do we have the capacity to deal with what is coming? Face the questions you want answered. Are you looking at a bailout? Can you walk the American people through what happens next? Are you saying you did not ever hear of such a deal? Do you need to level with the American people?
0: Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan. From the U.S. Embassy in Dublin, this is The Diplomatic Pouch. I'm Dermot Keane from the Public Affairs Office, and I'm John B. Murphy. Welcome back. This week we are delighted to be joined by Margaret Brennan, moderator of CBS News Face the Nation and CBS News Foreign Affairs correspondent based in Washington DC.
2: Brennan began moderating Face the Nation in February 2018. Becoming only the second woman in the show's 65-year history to hold the role.
0: Brennan has reported on politics, international affairs and global markets since 2002. She joined CBS News in 2012 and was named White House and Senior Foreign Affairs Correspondent in 2017 after spending a decade covering the global financial markets.
2: Brennan's interviews with leaders and newsmakers, including former President Trump, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, as well as vice presidents and secretaries of state, have continued face the nation's legacy as America's premier Sunday morning public affairs programme.
0: Margaret's a very busy woman. We were delighted to have her on the show and she was very, very giving of her time. So we were very grateful for that. We first asked Margaret about growing up in Connecticut and her Irish heritage. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing in Connecticut and what I imagine is probably a a fairly Irish-American household.
1: (laughs) Yes, Margaret Mary Siobhan Brennan. It it is indeed um, a a very Irish-American household that I grew up in in Connecticut. Um, I'm third generation Irish-American on my dad's side and fifth on my mom's side. My mom's side's been here for quite some time um, and came around the time of the famine. Um, But you know, I think one of the things that's interesting to me, uh, when I was 16 years old, I went and I studied abroad in Ireland as part of a high school program. And, um, it was the first time that I ever kind of really got some perspective on what being Irish American means, knowing that that hyphenated uh, identity actually is a distinct thing. Um, because I kept getting told, Oh, but you're really American. Oh, but you're really American. And, um, it, it was just interesting to understand a little bit. And, and I think it, it made me appreciate so much what having that knowledge, um, just growing up as a kid and having my parents put me in Irish step dancing lessons when I was five years old and you know, hearing stories of um, what it was like for the generations before me, how, how unique that really is. Um, and so I think that's something that obviously we hear currently from our president Uh, Joe Biden talked quite a lot about um, that hyphenated identity, which involves such an affinity for Ireland, but also an appreciation that um, it is a unique immigrant experience here. But, you know, when I was a little kid, it was just what all the other little girls in my Catholic school in Connecticut did. They they took Irish step dancing classes. And that was kind of the first real connection I had as a child to... um, what being Irish was you know other than St. Patrick's Day celebrations and it was a wonderful way for me um, to connect but also just you know for uh, a skill for a child to learn and I was a really shy little girl and putting me in competitions and dance classes was um, kind of a gamble for my mom Um, I don't think she knew what would happen since I was so shy but I loved competing and so you know it ended up for the years to come my parents were traipsing me up and down the east coast of the united states to um a fesh you know at least every month <laughs> particularly during the warm weather so it became this kind of manifestation for me of um it, it was it was a passion project for me but it was also a really concrete way to sort of keep me learning and knowing about that part of um, my family's story so that's sort of the the arc and thread that went through it. And I've always been interested in Irish history and politics and uh, continue to be now uh, where my, my parents were, um, you know, they were like, oh, she's reserved. She might not like having to be put on the spot, you know, with a competition. Um, and it actually was something that I think was, a really good skill for me to develop, to be able to focus on what I was doing, the skill I was learning to try to focus in a way that um, helped me uh, blot out those uh, pressures or those anxieties um, and just focus on performing. Um, the thing I was set out there to do you know and as a for a five-year-old it was a jig but (laughs) for a adult Margaret that is essentially the skill that I hone every week which is tune out the rest of the noise and focus on the assignment at hand and um, I do see some connective tissue between those things I mean that was a really useful skill Um, and it also taught me a great drive and it allowed me to explore this competitive streak that like I didn't know I had, my parents didn't know I had, but I just wanted to compete with myself to get to be better at um, dance. So I think in that way, it did help me prepare for the role I have now. We're joined now by White House and senior foreign affairs correspondent Margaret Brennan, who is traveling with the president. Margaret? Good morning. While reaching out to leaders of more than 50 Muslim-majority countries who are gathered here in Saudi Arabia, President Trump is calling for unity against extremism. He's abandoning that campaign-era rhetoric against... I was always interested as a little girl in, I I guess, the news. You know, my mom says maybe she let me watch the news too much. Um, And so I was always asking about current affairs and things. And um, the Middle East, uh, unfortunately, is often in the news um, for the wrong reasons. And I developed an interest in what was going on in social movements in you know, what was happening uh, on the news programs, um, you know, that developed in later times to so just interest in American history when I was young and doing school projects. So um, that was the, the Egyptologist um, career when I was like, what, well, I think in like fourth grade, that's what I wanted to be. Um, so I was always interested in stories of why things came to be, why paths in history diverged, social movements. Um, And that is kind of the common thread that brings me through to today is being just very curious um, and wanting to know and understand the backstory so that you can understand all the forces shaping where you're headed next.
2: So bring us up to, uh, you went to the University of Virginia. You also spent a a semester studying abroad in Jordan. How important was that to you?
1: I did. Um, When I went to the University of Virginia, and I grew up in Connecticut, which, you know, is a small state in the Northeast. Um, Going down south to school was something that was um, a big transition to me. And UVA is uh, a wonderful university. Absolutely gorgeous in Charlottesville, Virginia, founded by Thomas Jefferson, uh, one of our founding fathers, and quite historic, but it was a big adjustment for um, uh, a New Englander uh, like me, you know, uh, talking about that Irish American identity. It was the first time I met people in the United States who had a very regional identity. You know, going down south, people really think of themselves as southerners growing up where i grew up they were italian american or irish american or greek american or lebanese american and there it was just kind of there was no hyphen it was interesting culturally um and i think sometimes people don't realize that about the united states how different parts of this country are um but i went down there and i absolutely fell in love uh with the school and the culture it took some time i was uh you know, a bit reluctant at first, and then really ended up realizing that UVA was the best place for me. I I, um, studied foreign affairs and Middle East studies. I double majored and I minored in Arabic and I had no idea, but that was the place that, you know, would provide me with my lifelong friends and eventually my husband, who I met when I was an undergrad there, though we didn't date at the time.
2: You spent that summer in Jordan, but also your your Arabic was a, to come in very useful uh, to you in the future because you interned at CNN for a while.
1: I did. Yeah. So I when I was between um, when I was a, an undergrad, I got a Fulbright Hayes grant, which is a wonderful U.S. government funded program that was focused specifically on uh, um, helping students learn languages that are particularly useful for national security and for other things. And this was pre 9-11. So it was a very different environment in the United States. Um, The idea of studying the Middle East was truly coming from my interest and passion. There wasn't the same sort of all hands on deck, pouring every dollar into Middle East programs. In fact, we were in like a small department within the university at UVA. And I went to Jordan to um, this town called Erbid, which is in the north of the country. And it was an immersion program to really work on being able to use the Arabic that we studied in the classroom on the streets and in real life, which is a totally different experience. Um, And anyone who learns another language surely knows what I mean there, completely humbling to try to stumble your way through sentences and try to get people to understand you when, you know, you may have gotten all A's on your exams in university, but when you're actually trying to get someone on the street to understand you in a relatable way, they may look at you funny. Um, And it was such a transformative experience for me to have a first person uh, experience traveling in the region, getting to know people, getting to know the issues. And when I came back to UVA um, to finish out, uh, it it really did play a role in shaping the career trajectory because I went from thinking, oh, I can be in academia or be a diplomat to, well, wait a second, um, maybe there's another way to cover this. Um, and it was my mom who suggested that I try out journalism because I was often complaining about news coverage of the Middle East, oversimplifying or not having the right context or not understanding. And she's like, well, stop complaining about it and go see if you want to do it for a living. And um, I have an aunt and uncle who generously allowed me to live with them one summer down in Atlanta, Georgia, where CNN is headquartered and live with them for an unpaid internship. And uh, that was it. That hooked me. Being in the middle of a newsroom and picking up phones and talking to correspondents in the field and seeing feeds come in from all over the world. I mean, it just felt like you were in this nerve center. And I loved it. Um, And that was what really interested me in going into the news business. So um, that's really what kind of led me to my career path.
0: So after CNN, you were obviously hooked. Um, and What was next then? What was the next stepping stone?
1: Well, the world changed um, a few months later. You know, I, I went from CNN that summer back to UVA. And within weeks, 9-11 happened. And, um, you know, this obscure figure who I had worked on researching for or somewhat obscure but obscure the American public at large at least Osama bin Laden all of a sudden became um the driving force in terms of reorienting American policies uh, around the world and it just underscored this you know in, in this this feeling i had walking away from a newsroom that it was this nerve center and i was like oh my gosh um 9/11 happened it was transformative clearly to this country. And, um, all of a sudden the programs I was interested in and already studying became <laughs> the center of reorientation, um, for like the American national security establishment, you know, our small Arabic classes, all of a sudden became like, you know, there were lines of people trying to sign up. And lines of people wanting to understand suddenly, like, well, what is going on here uh, in these different countries in the Middle East? Um, and it, it it was interesting because all of a sudden people were getting um, invested in this part of the world that I had always found fascinating, but they were getting interested in it out of this national security perspective versus, you know, a, a passion. So, I was graduating and clearly could have chosen the path of going to work for the US government, but I felt that journalism was the best place for me to try to play that role in understanding and reporting and being part of our um, democracy. Um, that may sm- sound a little schmaltzy, but I do believe that, um, that helping to keep people informed is a key part of that. So. I tried to figure out what to do next and get a job and uh, moved back up to the Northeast to New York City and ended up working at a news network called CNBC.
2: And you began to climb the ladder there. You were a producer on street signs uh, with Ron, Uh, you were a general assignment reporter, and then eventually you landed uh, a gig on Bloomberg, uh, which I think brought you to Dublin and London and other places. Yes.
1: DEBT IS STILL A FOUR-LETTER WORD, PARTICULARLY WHEN IT COMES TO SOVEREIGN DEBT RIGHT NOW. THERE ARE STILL FEARS ABOUT THE LEVELS, PARTICULARLY, OF IRISH DEBT OUT THERE. RIGHT NOW, THEIR BUDGET DEFICITS AT 33% OF GDP. IRISH FINANCE MINISTER BRIAN LENNIHAN IS HERE IN THE U.S. TRYING TO TALK TO INVESTORS TO SAY THEY CAN HANDLE THESE TREMENDOUS EXPENSES WITHOUT HAVING TO GO AND ASK FOR EMERGENCY funds FROM THE IMF OR FROM ANOTHER FUND IN EUROPE. But he did say quite candidly, if Ireland hadn't been part of the Eurozone, they might have had a situation like Iceland did.
2: The first point you have to do is look at the real Irish economy. We are exporting. We're not in a balance of payments deficit position. Your father would have worked on Wall Street. I assume you would have been surrounded by people who worked on Wall Street uh, growing up. Do you think that was an influence on you uh, when you were doing your financial reporting?
1: Absolutely. You know, I... When I went into CNBC and I had no financial news background, like I said it was all foreign affairs Middle East studies they wanted me covering um, and and doing some of the you know obviously huge industry around that. but I was also learning television and learning journalism from the from the ground up at 22 years old. Um, and certainly I'd be on the phone sometimes calling my dad saying, can you explain this to me? Um, but in, you know, my parents were hugely influential in shaping um, my thinking and interest in conversation. My dad was, uh, is now retired, but was an analyst and and had worked on Wall Street all my life. And that kind of critical thinking uh, is the skill set he definitely Put in um, and sort of groomed at the kitchen table. Um, you know, we joke that it's a very loud Irish American family yelling at each other across the table about issues all the time, and it's uh, it's something that I think was actually quite useful to me in terms of challenging thought. Um, and he came at it obviously from Wall Street from a financial perspective. But one of the things that made me develop an interest, and it was something I really had to develop on the job. Um, in financial news was the ability to see that it touches everything. There's a financial and economic story to everything. Every social policy, every political story, every local news story, there is some degree of um, connectedness there, right? You know, that overused cliche, follow the money is is very, very relevant, um, basically to any story you wanna tell. So anyhow, I developed this keen interest in in some of those dots connecting at a time when all of a sudden um, America went careening towards a massive global financial crisis (laughs) and uh, being at the center of that storm was incredible as a young reporter um, watching the global financial system nearly come to a grinding halt. And I got to cover retail and the consumer, which was interesting because that was kind of rubber meets the road, looking at American consumers and how they were impacted by the crisis. And uh, that was what kept me going. I went to Bloomberg, as you mentioned, as a financial anchor and got to do more of the global markets. And so that took me to Dublin and, and to um, really around the world on a number of big stories because the... Financial crisis in the US obviously was a global story, but it also led into some of the European debt crisis um, stories that would follow on in years to come. So it's interesting how events kind of aligned there, but um, it, it really, I loved it. And I still love looking at uh, some of the economic stories. I mean, I do it now. Thank you for making time for us. This is your first visit to the United States as Prime Minister. What do you hope to accomplish?
0: Well, it is my first visit as Tishuk I'm very honored to be able to come to Washington and participate in the traditional St. Patrick's Day celebrations. You seemed, Margaret, um, from, from looking back at um, the archives of of interviews you've done, you seem to always um, somehow manage to interview an Irish Taoiseach. Were you, um, <laughs> I, I don't know why that is, but were you particularly paying attention to Ireland at that time, which obviously, you know, was hit really, really hard by that economic crisis?
1: It was. You know, I will say two things. One, yes, there is an interest Two, I would say it was a very, very smart policy on the part of the Irish government to figure out how to reach out to um, the Irish diaspora, particularly in the United States. Around that time, uh, there were things like the Global Irish Forum, which I was a part of, um, and and other bits of outreach to uh, Irish Americans of influence. Um, that is a huge asset and and sort of muscle that can be flexed uh, beyond. Um, Irish borders and, and is often flexed, uh, as you can see. So, so certainly, um, the financial news story was something particular to Ireland, but the connectedness between the two countries, uh, you know, doesn't expire with that. Um, so, I, uh, I do. It is funny you say that. Um, have that habit of, of interviewing Tashiks, but you know I think it's, it's important, and you will see it. I suspect in the in the week to come, uh, around St. Patrick's Day, the great affinity that Irish Americans have, um, and pride, frankly, uh, in the immigrant experience in America. I think um, Joe Biden has talked quite a lot as a candidate about what that means to him. I think. Certainly for me, um, knowing and learning about my family's immigrant experience um, has been really, I, I, I learned just even more just this past year because of uh, trying to trace back my uh, the first woman in my family who voted in this country and trying to figure out who that was. And you just see all these themes that keep reoccurring to different immigrant groups in the United States. Um, And looking back at, you know, the period around 1920, when the, uh, when women could vote in this country for this, the first time and seeing coming off the 1918 pandemic, my great, great grandmother and the experiences she went through with a husband who was straight off the boat. She taught him to read and write because he didn't, immigrate with that experience coming as a poor Irish catholic immigrant to america you know she was an irish american here who did have some schooling um she lost two kids to that pandemic and just understanding what that difficult immigrant experience is like then you can see the echoes of that in other groups now and i think that is so important and you know i certainly want my sons to understand and be proud of where they came from, um, and the stories of the people who shaped them. So for me, I guess that's part of the continuing to refer back and check in on Irish politics and be interested in it because it is part of what shaped, you know, the, the arc of my family.
0: Speaking of your family, your your uh, firstborn son, his name is Eamon, which is obviously a very Irish name. Can you tell us why yourself and your husband chose that name?
1: <laughs> it is. Um, we picked that name and and we spell it E A M um, O N while we were driving across Ireland on vacation. Uh, my husband is Syrian American, and. Um, he, I think, just remarked, he's like, you know, that's funny. It sounds a lot like I meant in Arabic. And I was like, yeah, it does. It kind of sounds like the same name if you just say, it, you know, with an American accent. And he's like, oh, if we have a son, we should, we should do that. We should pick that because it means something to your family. It means something to my family. And so, you know, we weren't even pregnant at the time, but we'd picked out our son's name. So um, that is part of why we chose it because it's a it's a little piece of my history and a piece of his um and means something to both of our families we're about to have our second son in uh april and i'm kind of stumped <laughs> because there aren't too many names that work if you have ideas please let me know myself and
0: john we'll send a list we'll send a list of uh, yes something that, that sounds
1: <laughs> both arabic and irish yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> so since you 2012, uh, Margaret, you've been uh, you've been at CBS uh, in Washington covering uh, the Trump administration, the Obama administration, and you've covered the State Department as well. Um, can you tell me some of the major stories that you've worked on from from that time before we got to Face the Nation?
1: Sure. So I left New York uh, and covering Wall Street in 2012 to move to Washington D.C. where I am now um, to work for CBS News covering foreign affairs for them, primarily as a State Department correspondent. And it was exciting, a complete life change. It put me on planes, you know, being hurtled across the world um, all the time uh, at a period of time where the US was trying to rebuild its diplomatic outreach uh, with Secretary, then Secretary Hillary Clinton and later with John Kerry. um, And it was a great perch to be at uh, and to really see Washington and and learn it on the ground. You know, I'd covered Washington from the perspective of of Wall Street and spent quite a lot of time there in the decade prior, but being here um, in the political capital was uh, a great transition and way for me to return to some of the things that I was really passionate about with uh, foreign affairs. So all of a sudden I could use my Arabic a bit more. I could travel to the region more. um, And uh, I absolutely loved it. And so it grew from there through some amazing um, opportunities because of the diplomatic outreach. So the U.S. reopened relations with Cuba, huge story. Landmark nuclear accord with Iran, huge story. Uh, Syria's chemical weapons and uh, an accord we now know to be completely flawed, but was massive in that moment in time after Bashar al-Assad massacred thousands of his own people. Um, There were just so many big inflection points and opportunities that I got to cover. And uh, it's been a wonderful ride, brought me to eventually that White House correspondent role at the end of the Obama administration and uh, then through the Trump administration. Um, and I keep one toe in that water still as as foreign affairs correspondent. Today is Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's 65th birthday. She is celebrating at home with former President Bill Clinton this weekend. Margaret Brennan covers the State Department for us. Margaret, good morning. Good morning to you, Nora. And uh, Secretary of State? hits legal retirement age today. She says that she will not serve a second term as Secretary of State. She's three months from retirement, and as she comes up on the milestone, she's been looking back. When I was pregnant, um, I was in uh, a law firm. I was the only female partner. A reflective Hillary Clinton shared pregnancy partner, stories on Thursday. A... The men in the firm would like... <laughs> You know, it certainly traveling with then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, um, who was greatly presumed uh, in a very poorly kept secret, was going to be running for president in a few years. Um, You know, that was that gender was an inhibition to her ability, perhaps as it continues to be, it is to perception. So it's a problem for other people, I think, more than the women I know.
2: What was it like transitioning from an Obama White House into a Trump White House for a journalist?
1: Oh, gosh, it was night and day. I covered the Trump administration from day one. And, you know, the former president was elected as a disruptor. Um, He was certainly that, perhaps not as billed. You know, he he didn't completely change the system, but he did constantly disrupt it. and, and along with that came a lot of chaos in terms of reporting. It was uh, just completely um, different because you had within one administration, no singular um, sort of unifying ideology. You had competing interests. So just reporting a basic story was often a challenge because you had to not just get multiple sources, but understand the motivation of that one source may completely contradict the, the, the motivation of the other. You, know, you had to get more than two. You needed handfuls of sources to understand all the competing interests at play that were pushing and pulling policies in different directions. And oftentimes you didn't uh, end up with um a clear policy so it was incredible storytelling um it was just very challenging I think in terms of policy making um, and therefore reporting on policies uh, or you know major changes to legislation for example there weren't a lot of them um, in part because of, some of this infighting. So all those diplomatic initiatives and strategic initiatives that were constantly presenting themselves under the Obama years, international agreements, many of them flawed, um, they weren't really there. You You had summits, you had meetings, you had moments, but there wasn't a great big crowning breakthrough deal, for example. So it just became a constant churn of... Um, a, lot of, a lot of chaos. It was interesting, it really is. And I, and I don't think it's all, um, I, I think journalists who focus solely on personality miss the mark here. Um, I think it's reflective of other sort of undercurrents in our society right now too, where you see some of these patterns repeated outside the US. I, I think we're going through a lot of upheaval and change on many levels. Good morning, and welcome to Face the Nation. We're in the NFL Experience Complex at the site of Super Bowl 53. The presidential interview is a tradition for the network broadcasting the game, and this year it's on CBS. So we sat down with President Trump in the Blue Room in the White House on Friday. Would you shut down the government again?
2: Well, we're going to have to see what happens on February 15th. And You're not taking I, it I off table. I think. The table. Well, I don't. I don't take anything off the table. I don't like to take things off the table. Uh, It's that alternative, it's national emergency, it's other things, and you know, there have been plenty national emergencies called. And this really is an invasion of our country by human traffickers. These are people that are horrible people, bringing in women mostly.
0: Was it difficult, Margaret, keeping up with the news at that time? I mean, it must have been so constant. And whether it was a tweet overnight or, you know, a a statement being released or a press conference or something by the helicopter, was that a tricky thing to do as a journalist at that time?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, You were just constantly working, but also constantly you know, you'd write three or four scripts and you'd throw one out because the next story that broke an hour later was a bigger story. Um, You were chasing your tail. It's, it really, in that way, was very challenging. um, Just from a workflow perspective, you were drinking from a fire hose news wise. Um, When I became moderator of face the nation, it gave me a different perch from, from Which to see what was going on where I could have a bit more of a you know sixty thousand foot view uh, to say oh this is a shiny object this is actually important let's let's separate the two and I can choose to leave that one by the wayside and focus on this instead and that curation role is something that I take seriously as moderator now Um, but it's uh, there was constant intrigue and interest. Whether it was important as a news story is another matter.
0: In terms of interviews, Margaret, now that you're with Face the Nation, you obviously have high profile interviews every week. Can you tell us a little bit about tricky interviews um, and people that you've come across that have been hard, hard to get an answer out of?
1: You know, I love this job as moderator of Face the Nation um, because I do view it as a place where people have to come to be held to account. So it is a different um platform um for interviews is you know the the Sunday public affairs program and in the past year we've really reoriented to feel that role of public affairs in the middle of so many national crises particularly with the pandemic um you often do have to tangle with difficult interviewees uh and you do it every single Sunday but I mean, in, in terms of some of the more challenging ones, it, it's always a big deal to interview a president sitting down and interviewing President Trump um, or interviewing the former Attorney General Bill Barr or you know someone who's at the center of a storm. Like I did a recent interview with Dr. Deborah Birx, uh, the CDC advisor who was the head of the coronavirus task force. I mean, you really kind of have to dig in and understand all these different stories well enough to be able to help pull useful information out of them for the audience and pull through uh, the threads and understand why they did what they were doing at that point in time, for example. So there's a lot of um, homework and preparation that goes into each week. Uh, And particularly for those big interviews, we really have to sit and think through kind of the arc of an interview rather than just rat-a-tat-tat questions.
2: Are there women uh, that have inspired you throughout your your life or your career or inspire you now to this day?
1: So many, so many women. I spend, excuse me, particularly I think in this year that the past 12 months, they have been horrible for women, absolutely unforgiving uh, to women around the world, but particularly in this country. Um, And I see a sliver of it as do my friends who are privileged enough to be able to largely work from home. Um, But the disproportionate share of jobs being cut came from industries that were dominated by women. For those 4 million women in this country who remain long-term out of work, you know, we're 10 million jobs short of coming back to where we were before the pandemic, 4 million jobs on top of that, are just people who gave up looking large portion of those are women who have just had to turn their kitchen tables into school classrooms to teach their kids while also making it their boardroom to run their business while also trying to juggle everything else in their lives. Those women inspire me and, um, feed so much frustration and so much of my thinking right now and how to cover the social impact of this because i know if it's hard for me, uh, you know being a pregnant in the middle of a pandemic that is a sliver of what the majority of uh, women who don't have um, opportunities and resources like i do because of my job. Um, and so that inspires me um when i was younger, being a journalist, Christiane Amanpour inspired me greatly, but I do just love seeing um, women who are able to be really excellent in their careers full stop while juggling everything else too. Um, And so, you know, I don't like putting gender qualifiers on things to say, you know, most powerful woman in this industry or She's the only woman in this job because I don't wanna take away from it. But I do like acknowledging when someone is excellent at what they do and they happen to be a woman who is doing a number of other things on top of that, including being a mom. So um, that's a very long-winded answer to your question, but it's uh, it's a genuine one.
0: There we go, Margaret Brennan in conversation on the diplomatic pouch. So grateful for Margaret for taking part. And um, I know she's a very busy woman and uh, a lot going on right now. A lot of interviews happening this time of the year. Um, So thank you to Margaret for being a guest on the show. Thankfully, those Irish dances classes paid off for her. We'll have to try and dig out some video from somewhere of Margaret step dancing. I'm sure there's something online somewhere.
2: And we wish Margaret and her husband well in the next few weeks as they prepare to welcome their new baby boy into the world. And of course, a younger brother for Eamon.
0: Yeah, that was a great story about her son Eamon as well. What a great way to name your son. Uh, Fantastic. Really cool. That's it from us. This has been The Diplomatic Pouch. For now, take care. Goodbye.